Okay, let us begin our time this morning. I like that you guys like each other, but time to work. Um, we have, just to let you know where we're at, we have two weeks left in Isaiah, including today. So next week we're going to finish it. Today we're going to do chapters 56 through 59. Um, despite Matt's misgivings, wherever he went, I really enjoyed hearing his stuff last week. So um, appreciate him doing that. Next week we'll do 60 through 66, and there's a lot in both of these sections. I, understand, I, I get that, but we're going to be doing selected passages throughout um, because this is one, I mean, 56 through the end of the book, uh, 56 through 66, are really kind of Isaiah's last. You could, if you divide the book up into sections, it's, it's basically section number seven. It's the final section, and so we'll be able to do a lot by, uh, by moving quickly. Um, I've never pretended that we've been able to teach Isaiah exhaustively. Um, that would take years, and we've tried to do it in a semester. So we'll be done in two weeks, and then I really do want to... Next week will be our last week, so, and then the 27th, I really do want to start a bit of an Advent series and um, get a little liturgical on you guys, some high church stuff in terms of following... Um, I don't know that we'll use the Book of Common Prayer, but we'll use something along that line, the electionary type reading where the Christian calendar is guiding. Um, our tradition doesn't use it so much, but many church traditions do use the Christian calendar to guide where they're actually in Scripture and how and it shapes their worship. And for the last four weeks of the year, I want to do that because we're moving into the Advent season and so much of it is powerful. And I'm going to be doing what I can actually to reach out to um, some of the more high church um, fellowships in town to find out when their services are so that we can even begin to kind of partake in some of the stuff. If you've never been to a Catholic ser- Christmas service or a Christmas Eve or some of these, uh, the Presbyterian Church also does some great stuff. Like these are things that are worth venturing out and, and experiencing, and I think that we would all be the better for it. So I'll be pulling all that. We'll start that in two weeks on the 27th. Um, the other thing that I haven't done in a while, and I used to do this quite a bit, is um, share some recommended reading for those of you who are interested in some good books. Um, So I just ran in my office real quick and grabbed some of the ones that I've been enjoying lately or that we've read together as a staff or in other situations that I thought were really, really valuable. Um, So first, I'll start start with this one. Resident Aliens is um, something of a modern classic. It is. It came out in like 1989, 1988, I believe. Um, so this is the 25th anniversary edition. It's called Resident Aliens. It's by Stanley Hauervoss and William Willimon at the time. I think still, they're both on staff at Duke Divinity School. Um, and what they did in the late 80s and early 90s is give such a profound analysis of American culture and to say, let us help the church understand the context that we're trying to operate inside of. And they just did a masterful job of actually critiquing themselves. These guys are from a, um, a mainline tradition. Um, so they would, um, a lot of their colleagues, a lot of the ministers that they, that they work with would be from what our perspective, from a more liberal perspective. And they do a masterful job of criticizing the liberal perspective. 
And they do it in a way that you or I couldn't as being on the more conservative side. They're doing it from the inside. And it is just such a fun read. We read it as a staff earlier this fall. And um, it, it really helps even explain a lot of why the church thinks the way it does today um, and a lot of the ways that the church is struggling to engage and interact with culture. So Resident Aliens, great book. It's been in print now for over 25 years. You could probably get a copy for a buck plus shipping on Amazon. So that one is really good. A more recent one that I've been reading um, is Pictures at a Theological Exhibition by Dr. Kevin Van Hooser. This is actually a series of essays. So it's not one book. It's a series of essays that he has written over the years that explain why he believes Right thinking is so connected to right behavior. A lot of the orthodoxy and orthopraxy connection that we've been talking about. He says, the way you worship is so important because it will shape the way you think. The way you think will shape the way you worship. And so this is, um, this is one of those books that you can just kind of mosey through one chapter at a time because they're each really kind of isolated chapters on different topics. So fun little book of essays. Scenes of the church's worship, witness, and wisdom. And so he's dealing with how we worship, what it means to the rest of the world, and um, what it means for us. Um, this one I am almost done with, and this one is called The Life of the Mind. I'm actually, in your notes today, I have a quote from James Shaw, is a, um, I believe he's a Dominican He's a professor of government at Georgetown University, but a, a Catholic scholar. Um, people are wondering when I'm going to have my own Reformation. I'm starting to grow really fond of Catholic uh, scholarship. But um, this is called The Life of the Mind on the Joys and Travails of Thinking. And again, this is a set of isolated essays. And he just does a great job of asking why, why study at all? Which is a great basic question. Like why, why devote a lifetime to studying the scriptures? Why, devote, why is reading valuable? What should you be reading? And he'll make a big case for reading classics. For, he makes a huge defense for the liberal arts. He, just, he believes that there is something that the Greeks and the Romans had about how they educated their children that is important for us to discipline ourselves in the same kind of vein, both as adults and thinking about our kids. And so I've really enjoyed this one, The Life of the Mind, James Shawl. And this one is super, super practical. This one I just picked up uh, last week, actually. Jim got one for everyone. This is what we're reading as a staff now. Patrick Lencioni, which is more of a businessman, uh, a guy who writes very practical books, and this is called The Ideal Team Player. And um, one of the reasons that he is so winsome as he writes these, you know, management books and other things that would just I would never read. Um, but he is, he's masterful. A, he's a, a believer. B, he, before he ever teaches you anything, he'll do it, he'll tell you a story. So his books are divided in half. First there's the fable, then there's the lesson. So he wants to talk about how to be an ideal team player. So any of you who are managers or teachers or employees or anywhere where you might have to play nice with others, um, this is a great book because he says there are ways to diagnose how to be a good team player and there are ways to diagnose if you want that person on your team at all. And so he goes through this, this little trinity of the ideal team player is humble, the ideal team player is smart, or is, and another way of saying that, as he used it, is they're savvy, they have people skills, 
and then they're hungry. So they have a right opinion of themselves, they have a right understanding of everyone else, and they have some drive. And while that just sounds unbelievably simple and basic, I can't tell you how profound this basic little book has been. So he tells a big story for like the first 120 pages where he works in all these principles. And by the end of it, you're like, wow, that was, that was like incredible. I think I know what you're going to say. And then he teaches it for like 10 pages. Great book, great book for any of you who are dealing with people on a regular basis. And then Patrick Lencioni. L-E-N-C-I-O-N-I. He's got a number of books on, um, on these types of things. So um, one of the most famous books that you might recognize is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. That's him. Um, he's got lots of really good ones. Death by Meeting, he calls for offices to have less meetings. And so he's just, he's a really, really great practical writer. Um, and then finally, some magazines that I've grown to really enjoy over the last year. Um, I've always received magazines like, uh, what is it, Christianity Today and other kind of cultural magazines, but I've lately become pretty fond of magazines that deal with things from like a heavy theology and try to apply that to the world. So they get outside of the church and they say, how do we take the actual stuff that we talk about on Sundays and apply it to the doctor's office or to the university? How do we take theology and make it public theology? And so that's where I've really grown fond of these two magazines. One is called First Things. It's, again, a Catholic publication, but it's, it is phenomenal. And then this one is called Comment Magazine. Public theology for the common good. Um, so just some of the things that these, these people will deal with. They deal with transgender issues. They deal with liberalism. They deal with um, assisted suicide. And they're saying, what does our theology have to do with these very real issues that people are dealing with outside of the church building? He deals with the, our, I guess, changing relations with Russia. Um, what it looks like to care for the elderly, what the court is going to look like now that Scalia is gone. He deals with going into what he views as a new Middle Age, and these are various authors, obviously, a new rise in atheism and what Christianity in China is looking like. These are fun topics that you have these, uh, most of these guys are professors at, um, in that case, Catholic universities, and they're very, very good writers. Comment magazine is usually each, up, each magazine has a theme. So this one is looking at what does public theology for the common good look like in our built world? Basically, what are the ethics that we employ in, in manufacturing, in business, in, in, in doing business on an international scale? They're, they're asking ethical theological questions. Um, what do we do with digital re restlessness? What do we do with our minds racing faster than they ever have in the history of the world? What are we going to do about journalism and the fact that the Internet is basically trying to kill it? And then this one came out just a little bit before the election, and he's calling for everyone to join the anti-revolutionary party. Um, and so he does a lot of analysis of um, Abraham Kuyper's theology, who was a Dutch theologian that really, really pressed for reform from the inside out, not tearing down the walls of the Bastille, but to actually reform 
from the inside out. And so these are just magazines I've enjoyed. They're pretty expensive. They're only, this only comes out four times a year, and I think it's $12 an issue. So once I've got it, you're also welcome to just borrow it. But these are fun reads. And so those are some of the things I've been enjoying lately. And um, all but one of those I'm done with. So anything I have, you're also welcome to borrow. No need to just buy. But fun things to read. And I am always looking for new things to read. So if you guys have good stuff, I want to know. So, okay. Now I'm ready for Isaiah. Um, like I said, Matt did a great job. One other thing before I get to Isaiah. Sorry. <laughs> this is, um, I've been gone for like two weeks, so I got lots to say. Today is the last Membership Matters class, so I really would appreciate your prayers. For we have, it has been strong. We've had between 30 and some weeks 50 people in that class wanting to know what it looks like to be active contributing members to Sunnybrook. And so today they're graduating, so to speak, um, which means that at 12.30 today, we have new people that are looking for ways to connect. And uh, I want you guys to bear that in mind as volunteers, as life group leaders, as life group members, as just members in this body, that we have these people that have been kind of learning what this is going to be about, and next week and the following week, we're going to announce them as new members here. So um, think through those things and um, care for them as you would have liked to have been cared for when you were new. Um, this can feel, I never really think of this as a monster church, but to someone new, it can really feel that way. Um, so bear that in mind as um, we have a new group of people coming out of it. Righto, um, Isaiah 56. Matt, could you, I'll take this. Matt, could you give us the quickest synopsis of 54 and 55? Which, by the way, I enjoyed your lesson, even if you didn't, so. Okay. Um, 54 and 55 are just wrapping up uh, the larger section into all the way back to 40. I honestly haven't looked back on any of my material since then. Um, <laughs> basically, uh, wrapping up all the works of the servant, how that the servant's going to be the one that does all of the work, all of the salvation. So it's, it's the final section of the, the section of Isaiah that's written as a comfort to those who are currently in Babylon. And you'll see today we have a shift in location as now 56 through the end of the book is going to be written to the post-Babylon context, the return to Judea. So we're going to have a, a drastic change in perspective, although it's the same people coming out. Um, so I think before we actually read the text, and again, we're just going to read certain sections of it. Before we read the text, um, I want to spend a, a moment throwing this question around the room. Um, as a room of believers who have um, confessed allegiance to Christ and have um, 
now taken on the Holy Spirit as God Himself living in us, and yet living in a broken world, um, waiting for the return of our Messiah. What are some of the thoughts that we have, or some of the frustrations that we have, living in this between the cross and the second coming epoch? So if you, th- if you reflect on, I love Jesus, Jesus hasn't come back yet. What are my thoughts about that? Why not? What's he waiting for? Mm-hmm. You ready? Okay. So, an angst or an an anxiety. Angst. Although everyone's starting to lose their mind over these moons, so we'll see. (laughs) It's just to put that to bed, it's irrelevant to when Jesus will come back, by the way. I'm just glad he hasn't come yet, because I still have people in my life that don't know him. Hmm. That was my thought, Debbie, is just like, you know, you think about it, and I'm ready, you know, but it's like, there's all these, you know, immediate family members. You'd be aware of it. I think so. I think the one thing that we're, I think we'll have a sanctified memory, but I don't think we'll lose our memories. Like, I'll know which of my family members aren't with me, and I'll know where they are. It's pretty simple. God's going to heal your memory, okay? God's going to heal your memory. It's not just going to be your body. Your memory is going to be healed. So that idea that we're going to be torn up because what's not fair, I think Bach offers some hope in that you're not going to have a tortured memory. Yeah. If you, if you had any angst over a family member who is not with Jesus, it would be, that would be because you're thinking of it wrongly. I've, a lot of peace in that and understanding that they can make the same choice I made. Yeah. But knowing that, you know, in this time frame up until he comes again, of like, come on, get it together, you know? Yeah. I'm sure many of you have heard Jim use this illustration in one of his sermons, but he's got a grandmother, sweet old lady, who just didn't love Jesus. And he said, and, I, and I've always wondered how this resonates with people, he said, when he... Um, in eternity, meets Jesus, and Jesus judges her for eternity. Uh, he will, he said, he, don't, he doesn't know if he'll have any other option but to clap and say, You did the right thing. And on this side of eternity, like our stomachs have a hard time with that, that we would take any delight in judgment. And, and I think Jim is just saying, I think we fail to understand how much we're going to love Jesus for being right in his judgment. And so, I have a hard time stomaching that, that I would champion the destruction of anyone. Um, and so, I've, I've always wondered what people think whenever they hear him use that illustration. That what we, what we struggle with now in our compassion, and, I, and good compassion for those we love, 
um, will in some ways be healed, eradicated, obliterated by our newfound perspective on what is good and right and just. I think that a lot of times that we, we slip back into God is mean for what he does. And part of me being healed will be an, a perfect appreciation for his justice, perhaps. And yet all of us are thinking of people we know and love and think, oh, I don't know. I mean, I'll go along with it because I can't change it, but I don't know if I'll be happy for it. Anybody else ever hear him describe that story and kind of, I don't know if I'm with you, Jim. Yeah. And and I think that we we might not have the right perspective on that if we don't have a high enough view of God. Because if we don't, I, I think if we don't read the account of the crucifixion and God's judgment on against Himself, um, and we don't sense this just sickening. Um, the word I'm looking for. Humiliation. He, he demonstrated humility through absolute humiliation to subject himself to something so weak as us. And if that doesn't kind of get us choked up, I think it's because we have a pretty a lower than, than appropriate view of God to realize just how much he had to condescend to do that. Yeah. <laughs> we got lots of time for that. Yeah. Just, I mean, are they truly guilty if they can't understand or perceive correctly? I mean, that's, that's, yeah, like you said, there's Well, they are truly guilty. Um, I think the question you're asking for is is it fair that they didn't have a clear understanding of the means of escaping their appropriate judgment as they sit in. Everyone is truly guilty and everyone is completely culpable. But you're asking, is it fair if they don't have access to the gospel? Yeah, and I think that's the 
you know, because lots of people do, and they still don't believe. They just mm-hmm. like why they don't believe. You know? Yeah. Is it a personal choice, or is it just like, you know, intellectually that doesn't make sense, and they'll never go there hard enough to get to understand it? Yeah. It's, it's a hard question. It's still a choice, though. Hmm? It's still a choice. Is that what you're asking, or is it? Well, no, it is a choice. Uh-huh. It's just if if it if you don't understand it correctly, you go, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah it, it connects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you never connect, it's just like it's a. Well, the the murkiness of the waters we're wading into is it it gets cloudier with this. Did Judas have a choice to betray Jesus or not? Because like, could he have thwarted God's plan? Did um. Plagues 1 through 9, Pharaoh had the choice, hardened his heart. Plague 10, God hardened his heart. Did he have a choice? Well, at some point, did they? I don't know if the Bible really cares to even answer the question. Okay. Um, here's what, when we get into questions of free will and choice, um, usually the last person that we want to give free will to is God. Everyone else, like he's the only person that's at our beck and call us to do everything we want. We have free choice, we can do whatever we want. And we never give God, like, freedom of choice. And um, there are a number of occasions in the Bible where I don't have an answer for it, but God seems to violate our free will. And he's also the only person that is carrying the appropriate credentials to do so. So if he chooses to violate Pharaoh's free will, that's his prerogative. If he does the same thing with Judas, his prerogative. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Would you just explain middle knowledge, please? Yeah. Okay. Middle knowledge. Here's the question we're asking Does God know the future? Yes. Therefore, has he preordained every single thing that will happen? Like, if he knows it, can you, like, if he knows that you will blink now, can you force your eyes to stay open and thwart God's knowledge? And all of a sudden, God's wrong. No, I thought he was going to blink. I decided he was going to blink, and then he chose not to. We can't do that, right? But he still knows the future. Middle knowledge is a concept that, um, it's a, who is it? William Lane Craig loves it. I'm trying to think of the, uh, who is the, like, Catholic theologian. Here I am being Catholic again. Joe thinks you're going to move our initial class to a Catholic church. They look nicer. Um, <laughs> but um, what, they, what middle knowledge claims is that God knows the future, and he knows every possible alternate ending to the future. So he can put Brady, he's, he's so sovereign, he puts Brady in a, in a situation. And he knows every possible choice and every possible action that Brady will take. He knows, basically, they're, they're called counterfactuals. Even if they won't happen, he knows what will happen. And he knows that middle area, that middle knowledge, so well that he knows the end. So Brady literally has a choice whether or not he's going to choose to blink right now or hold his eyes open. And God knows every possible choice Brady could make, 
And because he knows that middle knowledge section, he also knows what the end result will be. And so this is where God can, in a way, you can, middle knowledge would make a case that Judas did have a choice, that Pharaoh did choose to harden his heart. It's just that God is so sovereign, he knows what the choice is going to be, and he is not surprised by the outcome. Therefore, you can technically go against, you just can't. You can't beat God. Like, there's just no way to do it. That's a very short, abbreviated, poor explanation of middle knowledge. But I would, it, it, is, it is important in this conversation. He made us. He knows us. Mm-hmm. He created us. So he knows the type of person who's going to do this thing. And he chooses that type of person to do this thing. Yeah. Would God ever use his creation out of step with his design for it? Would he ever be surprised that something is going not according to plan? This is, this is the hope that I give people whenever they get all up in arms about whichever way the election was going to go and then how it went. Whoever is upset for whatever reason, I tell them this. You cannot get around the fact that God knew how every single vote was going to go, and he knew how every single vote could have gone a different way, and he knew how it would end up the other way. And that the Bible just says in a number of cases that there is no kingdom that rises or falls without his permission. There is no one in power, there is no sub-sovereign underneath God that gets to do anything without, at the very least, God's allowing it to happen. Now we can get into all sorts of debates on whether or not he made it happen or permitted it, but the truth is, as Lloyd points out, he's, he is the, the master designer of all things, and nothing catches him off guard. Nothing catches him off guard. He wouldn't have been shocked if Judas had chosen to do something else, taking 29 pieces out of 30. And yet, God knew what was going to happen, and his, his will to kill Jesus had to happen. And therefore, it appears, if we get rid of this, it appears as if he violates our free will. Perhaps he just designed Judas to do precisely that. Which now we're like, great, I have my angsty student. Yes. Yeah, how much time do we spend poking a finger in God's chest? Like, that's going to bite us at some point. All the time. All the time, it bites hope. She never wins that argument. She likes to kick and scream for a little while, but she never wins the argument. And so, all this to say, back to our original question, when we ask, what is God doing? Why are you taking so long? Maybe it's a fun hypothetical question, but in the end, from the perspective of the heavenly throne room, a mildly inappropriate one. There's, there's a lot of these things that we, we want to know, and, if we, and even the nicest of us, if we drill down deep enough, it's out of an arrogance that we want to know it. Yes? In physics, we talk about living in 11 dimensions. And, limited by time and space. Nope. 
So where is God right now? He is simultaneously at the creation of the universe, at the calling of Abraham, at the... He's, he's watching Goliath die right now. He's at the cross. He's in the future. Like, he doesn't experience time. Time, like, all of human history is a singular moment to him. Like, it hasn't happened yet. He's already there. Um, we are time-bound. Like, he's not, he's not bound by anything created. Therefore, he's not bound by space or matter or time. They are subject to him. And he exists outside of all of them. This is why, who was I having a conversation with? Oh, it was Diane. We're having an argument over um, whether or not Moses saw um, God's face. It says that, that God's face shone upon his. I just said, like, the only problem with that is because it's super figurative, because here's the deal God doesn't have a face. So there's blow number one to Moses saw God's face. He doesn't have a face. We ask, does God have a mustache? Don't know. Doesn't have a face. And I think that a lot of times we personify him and, and slap our human perspective on things. And the Bible is one gigantic act of condescension. When it says that God sees, that he hears, that he speaks, that he does all these things, it's him lowering himself to a human level to interact with us. He doesn't, he doesn't have vocal cords. doesn't have eyeballs. When it talks about the strong arm of the Lord, of the Lord doesn't have an arm. He is no. He has no body. Question: If he doesn't have any of those features, then why does he say, "Let's create man in our image"? Well, did like he didn't create us in his physical image. He created us to be relational. He created us to be responsible for things, and he created us with spirits, and he created us as representatives of him. So none of us looks like God. Jesus came and looked like us, took on human flesh. We didn't take on godly shapes. So God does not have a body. He is, he is spirit. And, and I think that we can, when we start to look at the Bible and start to question him, we're putting human constraints on him. And he's just like, you stupid people. You just, you have no concept of how much bigger than you I am of how much more I understand the long view of history, of how much more I get what I'm doing, and I have the power to do it. And you, little hope, keep putting your finger in my chest and questioning me. <laughs> Not just her. Hope's just the most vocal about it. The most honest. The most honest. See? There you go. There you go. Honesty. <laughs> I love the... Every other week I get a real angsty text from Hope with a new zinger that needs to be answered. And, and God is always right. <laughs> but then, she's, I like that she asked the question. Yeah. Well, see, Ryan, this is why we get those thoughts in our head. Like I was reading Psalm 11 this week, and it says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids. I mean, specifically, His yeah. eyelids test the children of man. So see, of course, why wouldn't we humanly think he has eyelids? Well, because that's poetry and it's figurative language and he's talking to human beings. So how else would he tell you that he's aware of what's going on? He, that, that, that poem is saying that he is in control and he's aware. Okay. And, it, and it says, okay, well, how do I get Pat to understand that? Let me talk about my throne control. Let me talk about my eyes and my eyelids. I can see. Okay. He doesn't have either one of those things. So we can see 
so we can understand who yeah. he is and how powerful he is and how in control and sovereign and yeah. all those things. Like you'll never see God the Father, ever. Not even in heaven. You will not see him. Can't see his spirit. Well, we see Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus, I think, is permanently incarnate. I think he's. I think he actually might be the only person in heaven with scars. Mm-hmm. I really don't see any reason why I'll still have scars. Mm-hmm. But who knows? So, uh, just to play devil's advocate because this is fun. It is fun. We might not even finish Isaiah so today. We're anthropomorphizing God. Yep. Got that part. Yep. But the central relationship is how God loves us mm-hmm. and how we love Him. Mm-hmm. Love is a well, it became a human attribute once he demonstrated. He, he models it. So God defines love, which is sacrificing, which is compassionate, which is forgiving. So take all of God's characteristics of love and then filter them down through the human strainer. And that's what we have to do as love. But I would, I would argue that it is second a human attribute, that it's first a divine attribute, and that you have this eternal fellowship in the Trinity that is loving. And yet, love is also a person. Yes, I think so. And so every, like a lot of this stuff translates down to humanity. But then what, what we can't do is we can't take divine love, perfect, and then come down to human love, pretty good, and then take this and make this the new definition and hold God accountable to it. Because my human love wonders why, my, my human love wonders why you haven't come back yet, hope. I really want you to come back because I'm tired of all the pain, I'm tired of the sickness, I'm tired of watching people suffer. That's human love. Human love also says, don't come back yet. I have people I still need to introduce to you. You see how both of those are human versions? And God is saying, I am so loving. I'm not going to listen to hope or you. Like, I'm so loving. I, I, like, I'm going to do things according to my plan. With, it's not that he doesn't have regard for those who are suffering. It doesn't have not, it's not that he doesn't have regard for those who are currently lost that do need him. It's just that his... His love, like, here's a great question. If I wanted God to come back so badly right now, am I willing for Him to not create more people that would one day love Him? Like, do I want certain individuals to never exist because I want Him to come back now? Like, this is where, like, I could, I love playing devil's advocate. I was going to say, don't tempt me right now. I have a whole list of people. Yes. (laughs) So, um... In, in every respect, when we start to question God, our first response should be, good question, but I have a limited perspective. Good question, my heart's not as good and my intentions aren't as pure as I think. Good question, I may someday get the answer, I may not. If there's one thing God doesn't owe us, it's an answer. He is kind and gives many, but I think there's a bajillion questions I have that I will never get the answer to. I'm not privy to, like, those things are too deep. I have no idea if God will be able, like, if he'll be able to, in heaven, condescend enough to explain to me predestination and election. It might just be the mystery. There are some mysteries I'll never understand, the incarnation of Jesus and with God and humanity. I'll never understand that. I'll never understand the logical order of the Trinity in terms of, Three and one. How is it one? How is it three? I'll never fully understand. Those are mysteries that I will not comprehend, and I don't expect God to ever explain it because I don't think even in my perfect state that a human mind can comprehend such things. So I'm usually pretty quick to say, cool question. Moving on. 
You know, I don't need the answer to it. And sometimes when we want to poke a finger in God's chest, it's because we, we refuse to move on until all of our questions are answered. Again, that just smells of arrogance. Hope's not arrogant, guys. I'm not trying to beat up on her. But if you, ref- if you say, until you, I won't, that's arrogance. That's God saying, really? <laughs> Do you know how small you are compared to me? Do you know how little you know compared to me? Do you know how perfect I am compared to you? You want to try again? And that's when we say, yes, sir. Moving on. But he's long-suffering. Hmm? God's long-suffering. Thank the Lord. <laughs> he's super patient. He's very patient. Which is what we're to be as well. That's uh, one of the primary reasons I love studying Scripture is not because it really tells me what to do, but it tells me who to be like. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for how God behaves. I want to be like that. So when he's long-suffering, I want to be long-suffering. When he's patient, I want to be patient. I'm still working on all the kindness part of him. Um, we agree. No. No. I, hey, it's not like I'm unaware. Like I said, you love people, I love the truth. So. Thank you. Thank you. You would restore the relationship. Now we're all suffering long. I know. Yeah, now, now we're really putting a lot of pressure on everyone else. So. Okay, let's, uh, in our 30 minutes we have left, we're going to be doing a little extra Isaiah next week, but I thought that was fun. So, um, we basically just covered that first paragraph on, on your sheet, or those first two paragraphs on learning patience. Because I think that what these um, four chapters are calling the Judeans or the Hebrews coming out of captivity back into their land to understand. So here's the, the situation. Um, I wish I'd have brought a book that had a great synopsis of what's going on. Um, basically, at, fi- at the end of 55, the book shifts to... Now the perspective of, now I'm going to give some instructions through the prophet Isaiah to the community that's returning to their decimated kingdom, their torn apart capital city, and their absolutely leveled um, temple. So um, if any of you were with us during Zechariah, that book deals with this period of time we're now moving into. Um, And you can read in, um, in the historical books of the Old Testament the account of the of the you can call them refugees or whatever, the exiles coming back in and just being frustrated with what's going on. Because, yay, we've paid our penalty. We've gone through the judgment. We've been purified. We've been punished. Now God is restoring us. Let's go home. And they get home and they're like, this looks terrible. It's nothing like the splendor it used to have. They are... um, when they return to Judea, the, the exiles are now dealing with foreigners that had settled the land while they were gone. They are dealing with the people that Babylon didn't want, the kind of the unmentionables. Um, they're, they're now kind of taking over everywhere. They are coming into a broken economy, probably no economy. And rather than being a sovereign state, they're now a vassal state. They are now a territory of what was once Babylon is now the Medo-Persian Empire. So, yay, we get to go home. We don't have any money. This place looks like trash, and we're, in control, we're, we're controlled by another nation. That's their situation. So they get back, and they think, 
this isn't quite the redemption we expected. This isn't quite what we expected restoration to look like. And chapter 56, the first eight verses, lays out, I know that your nation is trash. I know that it looks bleak, but let me tell you how you're going to live now as the Lord's redeemed. So, marks of the redeemed community are this. 56, starting in verse 1. Thus says Yahweh, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. And then you have the beatitude language. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now you might think, okay, that's a weird connection to make. Justice and righteousness with the Sabbath. Why did he pick that particular law to highlight in terms of justice? Sabbath law was intended not only to help us model ourselves after the pattern of rest that God builds into creation, um, it also, it's also intended to build in a, a uh, dependence on God, a trust in Him, as you'll let your labors cease for one day a week. Um, the five-day work week actually is kind of relatively modern. And the Bible had a six-day work week. So any workaholics in here, say amen. Uh, but the Sabbath was that one day where you say, I'm going to trust you with this. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to cease productivity. But it was also built in so that you wouldn't abuse your laborers. It, the Sabbath law is a social justice law as much as it is any other law. It is a law that says, not only will you rest and you will trust in God, you will not oppress others who you can force to work seven days a week around the clock. It's a matter of justice. So if you look through the Old Testament, especially the major prophets, they get all bent out of shape about the Sabbath law being um, neglected. And if anything, it's one of those laws that God seems to take more seriously than others. Why does He value the Sabbath so much? Does He really just want us to lay down that badly? No, He wants you to trust Him, and He wants you to care for others. And to do that, you obey the Sabbath. So when he says, keep justice and do righteousness, and jumps down and says, keep the Sabbath, don't profane it. Because by profaning the Sabbath, you are doing evil. The Sabbath, you'll see even in the following chapters, is very much connected to justice. Which, by the way, is like the one Ten Commandment that none of us care about. <laughs> and I've, I've, like, from time to time, Sharon loves to complain about how much I like to work. Um, and I'm in her office for counseling, so she's got that right. But um, she always, you know, I, I think I've told you guys this before. She's challenged me to not take my computer home, which I don't have a computer anymore. I switched to an iPad, tricked her. Um, <laughs> but she said, can you ever, like, go home and not take books? Can you just be unproductive for a while? And it was miserable to even think about that. But whenever I actually, I, I committed to doing it for... I think six weeks. Like I, there's Friday is my, technically my day off. Um, I will not read on a Friday. And it was amazing how, and I'm not saying that we do this just for practicality sake, but it was amazing how much more spiritually healthy I felt because I just slowed down. Now I've since sped back up, so that my sin is on my own head. But I've always wondered why that is the law I have the hardest time with. I hate liars. I'm not a fan of murderers and adulterers, I really don't like any of that stuff, but the Sabbath law, I've always just been an expert at ignoring. And I bet you most of us are too. 
And I don't think that that means that you lay around and do nothing. But there is a certain unproductivity that it seems to be called for by the Sabbath that, for whatever reason, many of us are uncomfortable with. And I have no idea how to drill down to the bottom of that problem because I'm still kind of dealing with it myself. But it's something to reflect on. Read through the Old Testament's concerns about the Sabbath is actually, I think it's a capital crime in certain cases. And it seems to be the one that God just gets furious over. And it's the one I'm the quickest to ignore. But how do you decide what's okay and for being productive and not being productive? I mean, we struggle. Sure. Again, I don't think it's just taking naps all day. But, so like I would, I, 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 when I Sabbath, I truly can mow the yard, take care of the house, do all that stuff. But there is a, um, there is a, a walking away from progress. Whatever it is that I'm consumed with, like, progressing through. So for me, that's usually I need to get this book read because I need it now and blah, blah, blah. I need to start this one, blah, blah, blah. So Sharon has, she just, like, that's, that's a little bit where the wise counsel can be helpful. She knows me well enough to say, this is where you need to stop. One day a week, you need to stop. Don't work, don't produce anything, don't read. Just take care of the yard, be with your family, do whatever. And uh, I don't know how you, how, you know, I don't think it's the same for everybody else. I would say if, if you're going into the office seven days a week, that's a clear violation. Um, but other ways, it's more subtle, I guess. I do a lot of work at home, so it's easy for me to look like I'm Sabbathing. At least not at the church. But I'm ignoring everybody else at home, too. So it's something worth thinking through. Of what is the Sabbath? Um, I, I'm not a fan of what does it mean to you. Don't really care. Um, not a fan of what do you think about the Sabbath. Again, don't really care. I am a fan of recognizing what the Scripture calls us to and trying to figure out how we live in line with that. And it's messy, because especially with... Um, it, Sabbath is easy when you're in an agrarian economy. Get your hand off the plow. Like, that's easy. Sabbath is more complicated when we have like really advanced kind of work schedules that look very different than, than the ancient world. So um, I would ask people that care about you, that are obviously wise, and that actually don't do anything like what you do in terms of occupation. Because if I ask, if I ask Jim Johnson what Sabbath looks like, I'm going to get a very different answer than Sharon. Because he wants to read too. And so we're going to find a way to mutually justify what we want to do. She, Sharon isn't interested in the things I'm interested in. And so she has an easier time poking her finger in my chest and saying, stop it. You've got to have those kind of people in your life that don't share your interests but share your affinity for the truth and call you to it. We were running out of time, and we've made it two verses, people. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll find a way to make the last six chapters of Isaiah part of our Advent series. That's what we'll do. Um, okay, let's, let's at least try to make some headway, though. Um, Verses 3 through 8 describe the other characteristic of this redeemed community. First, it says, you're going to love justice. You're going to obey the Sabbath. You're going to bring... They were sent into exile because they were not preserving justice. 
That's when, the, that's when society reached a boiling point where God said, I'm going to start over. You're going to exile because they were unjust. Isaiah said as much earlier in the book. And then he also says, now, when you return, you're going to have a new degree of openness towards the outsider that you've never had. He says this in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. So he says, two people that would have been socially marginalized beforehand will no longer be pushed to the outside of the nation. They will now be a part of the covenant community. The foreigners and the eunuchs. Two groups of people that were to the ancient Israelites were useless. By the way, a lot of people's dear family members went into exile and were castrated there by Babylon. And so imagine what you're thinking to... When you're coming in and say your grandfather left and now he's coming back and he was a man of high standing, and a, a, a Jewish elder say, and he goes into ca- captivity and they castrate him and he comes back. Do we now shame him? Do we remove him from the community? And God through Isaiah says, no. There's going to be a new degree of inclusion. You're going to see the, the inclusion, like the doors open wide up. So verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, and here's the caveat, who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. So it's not just anyone, indiscriminately. It's not just any eunuch or any foreigner. It's those who obey me. Conditional membership in the covenant community. There's a lot there to learn about the church today. Verse 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. What kind of hope would that have been to men who had been castrated, socially useless in the Jewish society, and those who were born of a foreign nation, that he says, I will give them an everlasting name and they shall not be cut off. What a picture of a God who is willing to, in the darkness, come in and save and redeem. Verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. That is cited in Matthew 21, 13, Mark 11, 17, and Luke 19, 46. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Jesus comes in and grabs that verse. We don't have time to go read any of those, but it would be worth your time. Verse 8, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. That makes me want to go to John 10. That last verse in that section, John 10, 16. This is um, one of Jesus' famous I Am statements. So he's just said... um, Where is it? We'll start in 7. Jesus, so this is John 10, verse 7. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And here's the next I am statement. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now this is an important passage that is, I think, um, a bit of a polemic or an, an angry reflection on Ezekiel 34, I think. Yes, Ezekiel 34, where the wicked shepherds of Israel are described. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. There's your election stuff, John. I, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then here's the kicker. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, that being Israel. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus unifies all the outsiders and the insiders and says, I will bring them all together, and there will be one flock, one church. So any notion of a uh, separate Jewish church that will one day be brought into the fold is just struggling. That's the kindest way I can put it. Struggling to make sense of Isaiah and Jesus in John 10. And again, John 10 and I think Isaiah 56.8 are both reflecting on Ezekiel 34, which is worth reading Again, on your own time, but this is time when God says, He criticizes the leadership of Israel, says you guys have, you, you have taken advantage of, you have exploited, and you have not cared for my sheep. Talking about the religious leaders. And God is so fed up with it, He judges the shepherds, then He says, I'll be their shepherd. Okay, how's that going to look? John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. So, grabbing... Uh, Isaiah 56.8, running through Ezekiel 34, and then landing on John 10, you see Jesus criticizing the, or you see God criticizing the leadership and Jesus stepping in to fulfill the role as the perfect leader, which is an interesting segue into 56.9 through really 57.13, which is an extended criticism against the Jewish leadership. Um, and next week, that's where we will land because um, actually, I could probably do the rest of the chapter in five, ten minutes. That might be a lie. But then we'll get to um, 60 through 66. Um, but if you, if you want to do some reading on your own, I can tell you how it breaks down. 56.9 through 57.13 is all of the uh, descriptions of the bad shepherds. And how in 57.12.13 um, describes God will judge them. Actually, let me just teach this real quick. God will judge them. And then he, um, at the end of 57, 13, he says, But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So he's criticizing the leadership for saying, You guys have been superstitious. You have taken uh, part in the occult practices. You have bred this um, idolatry that's risen up in the nation. So they come out of exile, and they're still struggling to remain pure. Um, But God will judge the leaders as we see take place in the Gospels. He says, I will lead them. We see that take place in Jesus. And then um, 57, 14 through the end of 57, so 14 through 21, is a beautiful, beautiful poem about um, God's comfort for those who mourn. 
which should call our mind to the beatitude, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. So chapter five, Matthew 5, verse 4, um, you have this, this incredible story of God. Um, the difference you see um, in this comfort is there's a difference between how God disciplines people and how certain people choose to walk away, which goes a little bit to some of the questions we've talked about. Chapter 58 is one long section on true fasting involves repentance. It's not just fasting for fasting's sake. It's fasting with a contrite heart. That's 58. And then chapter 59 describes the evil and the oppression. It's kind of a desperate situation that the nation is dealing with. And then chapter 59, verse 9, there is a communal lament, mourning what's going on. And then um, I'll just end here. I'll read the last few verses of chapter 59, and you'll see this beautiful picture of the redemption that will one day come. Um, I'm going to start in the back half of verse 15. Chapter 59, verse 15b, where that new paragraph begins. It says, Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him. Uh, kind of the, un- the injustice that was going on, the lack of righteousness in the nation. It says, God saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. This should sound pretty familiar, although it doesn't match up perfectly with um, Ephesians 6, but watch. He put on righteousness as uh, as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. You see God preparing for battle here. According to their deeds, so will he repay. He is perfectly just. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun or the east. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. So God says, I've recognized the injustice. I'm preparing for battle. I will judge them. I will war against them. They will learn to fear me. I will be an unstoppable force. And in verse 20, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them. And this just sounds beautiful to those of us that know the gospel. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Bleak chapter that ends in this beautiful picture of hope. Um, and it's unclear whether or not he's talking about a spirit that's been placed on Isaiah or a spirit that's been placed on that Redeemer figure. Whatever the case, um, he says that children in the covenant community will one day have the spirit in an unceasing way, in an eternal way. And uh, the implication is, and you'll see in the final seven chapters of the book, um, therefore trust me. It's going to be hard, but trust me in this. So that goes back to the long-suffering we were talking about, which is interesting to think about whenever we say, I wonder why Jesus is taking so long. Or, I want you to take a little bit longer so that I can achieve X, Y, and Z. In either case, I think the call of Isaiah is, trust me, 
I know what I'm doing. All right. That is all, um, lest there be any questions. Next week, we will finish Isaiah. I'll try to think of a really fun topic to get us going for an hour before we actually talk about Isaiah. But that was fun. Um, I really do get a kick out of those kinds of conversations. They don't just have to happen here in front of everybody. Um, I, the beautiful thing about my job is I have a schedule that lets me get coffee or lunch with anyone, anywhere, and have these conversations, and that's what I'm actually paid to do most of the time. So if any of you ever want to have another conversation about this, I would love to do it. Tara will host us at her establishment at Aspen. She, she is. Tara is great. Whenever I'm here, my phone rings, and I can't get any work done, so I go hide at Aspen. And if people come talk to me and I have too many books out, Tara's just kind of the watchdog, says, he's busy, you need to leave. And I don't have to be the bad guy. So he's working. Look at him on his phone. He's working. So anyway, that's all we're going to have. If, if you thought that was a little depressing, the good news is the sermon's about divorce. So um, whatever it is, I'm kind of the high point today. So... It'll be really good. Jim should have an extra dose of enthusiasm. He hasn't done anything around here for a couple of weeks. So um, I told him I'm really glad he's going to do his job again. So you guys are dismissed, and we'll see you next week. Finish up this book.